right, Luke chapter 20, verse 45. Let's read the text and then we'll pray. And let me remind you that these are the words of our Lord. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the places of honor at dinner. And they devour widows' houses. And for pretense, they make their prayers long. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting the gifts into the offering box or the treasury. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble or fine or beautiful stones and offerings, he said, and as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be one left on or one stone left upon another. They will be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, or saying, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us and bless the reading of your word. Father, we have heard from you and your word is clear. It's only confused by our own thoughts and philosophies and inputs into your word. And I pray, Father, that in your grace that you might give us a clean slate this morning and fresh eyes to see. I pray that you might give me words that make sense. I pray that my mouth wouldn't outrun my mind and that I would make clear explanations of the text this morning and our hearts would be prepared and ready, anticipating, receiving the word and its interpretation and its application and that we would take what we know and then apply it to our hearts and our lives and let it reflect itself in how we live. Lord, you're so kind and gracious to us to speak to us. You are a God who created the heavens and the earth with your spoken word. And how gracious you are to put your word to your people on paper so we can read it thousands of years later and know more of who you are and how we should be. So, Lord, help us, I pray, in these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 21 is primarily about Jesus getting the disciples ready for the days ahead. And he really begins it with a question. And you can look back at 21.7 and they ask, teacher, when will these things be? And so Jesus takes that question for the rest of chapter 21 and he goes about the business of getting his people ready. And we need to be reminded of that just briefly 
The Lord's always been faithful to do that. We know what's coming. We know why it's coming. The only thing we don't know is when exactly it's coming, but he spends much of 22 helping us understand when. And so we've got so much detail here to instruct us on how we are to live as we prepare for his second coming. And so when we get more into next week, we will be all about the language of preparation, right? But this section begins with the end of his words about the judgment that is coming and the destruction of the temple. In fact, we come across four verses that sit in the middle of all of this that I have found one of the most difficult passages that I've had to deal with in the Gospel of Luke. And you're like, man, I've heard this since I was a child. What's so difficult about it? And I think the reason for the difficulty is because we're convinced that we know about it. And here's another one of the reasons that I, I remind myself and I think to tell you sometimes don't take notes in your Bible. Take notes in your notes. That way, when you sit down with your Bible, you got a clean slate and you don't have any of your old notes sending you down a particular path. You just got a clean slate and you pray that the Lord might open up your heart and see the treasure within. It just means one thing. So we have to figure out what that one thing is. Interpretations for this passage are many. But let me begin by saying something that it is clearly not is about faithful tithing. And if you're a Baptist, that's probably the only way that you've seen these passages dealt with. This is a woman that is tithing faithfully. And so Jesus pauses, if you'll think about this for just a second, he pauses on his way to Calvary and says, hey, don't forget to tithe. And by the way, the amount is not so important as much as the sacrifice. And then he turns and we walk right into 21 where he's betrayed by Judas and then he goes and he gives his life. That's not what's going on here. Jesus, they say, is teaching that the measure of the gift is not how much you give, but rather how much you have left over. Because after all, this widow could have kept back one penny, right? But instead she gave both pennies. And then they call you to that sort of tithing, sacrificial tithing. Of course, we've just walked through all of that. And if you want to go back and get refreshers on all those sermons on tithing. I think there were two or three that we dealt with in the Gospel of Luke. They're online somewhere. But the problem with that is that completely, completely ignores the context, the passage before and the passage after. Remember, we have to do that. We can't just pluck out four little verses and say whatever we want to say about them. If you look back in 2046, it begins with, Beware of the scribes. And at the end of 47, it says they will receive greater condemnation. That's obviously negative. It's about as negative as you can get, right? Then you look on past the widow and you come to 21 verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble or beautiful or fine stones and offerings, he said, and as for these things that you're looking at, the days will come when there will not be one left upon another. They will all be thrown down. It's the destruction of the temple. Negative, very negative. So in between these two passages on judgment, I don't think we find four verses that a Baptist can use to remind everyone in the church they need to give sacrificially. That's bizarre, okay? There is a hint of the upside-down wisdom of God. That's what I call it. 
You know, God doesn't think like we think. The kingdom of God runs by entirely different principles and standards. So is this something that the Lord is trying to tell us? Hey, by the way, remember, I don't think like you think. Look in verse 3. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, if we're going to operate by human wisdom, we'd immediately respond with, no, she didn't. I mean, I know the difference between two pennies and 200. So if I want somebody to come to church on Sunday morning during fundraising, I want the guy with 200. The lady with two pennies can just stay home, right? But this is the upside down wisdom of God. He doesn't think like us. The kingdom doesn't operate like this or like our kingdom does, so to speak. And so we see this wisdom scattered throughout the scriptures. In fact, we're about to run into it again. Flip over to Luke 22 and I'll show you another instance of this upside down wisdom of God. Look at Luke 22 verse 24. A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kingdom of the Gentiles, that's our kingdom, they exercise lordship and over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but that's not so with you. Rather, here's my wisdom, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves and then he asks the question, who's the greater, one who sits or reclines at the table or the one who is the servant of the table? Obviously, in our wisdom, we would know. We would say, is it not the one who sits at the table? But, Jesus says, I'm among you as the one who is the servant or the one who serves. And so we see this upside down wisdom of God. And you know, I'm pretty passionate about this. I get really upset when the church operates under the false principles of the kingdom of men. I really don't like that at all. More money does not equal more kingdom work. And unfortunately, Baptists pride themselves in that. The more given, the more missionaries, the more kingdom work gets done. Hello, God is sovereign. And God does exactly what he wants, when he wants, through whomever he wants. That's the only time the kingdom of God is ever accomplished. And we don't measure our things like the Lord measures his things. So we have to be careful about what we allow into the church. The measure of our success is not bigger buildings and more people and more baptisms. That's neither positive or negative. That just leaves you with a big question mark. What's going on here? I've told you often the measure of our success, immediate success, is your personal holiness and your growing commitment to service within the kingdom of God. That's something we can really measure. So is this passage about God's upside down wisdom? I don't think so, because once again, that ignores what is before it and that ignores what is after it. Here's another thought. And to be frank, when I first worked through these passages, this is where I landed on my own. False religion is based on pretense. True religion is based on trust. And I ran with that thought a very long time. If you'll notice with me in Luke chapter 20, verse 45, rather 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in marketplaces. They love the best seats at the church. They love places of honor at the feast. 
Verse 47, for pretense, they make their prayers long. Okay, that's false religion. It's based on outward appearance. It's based on show. It's based on, hey, watch this. And you'll know how to worship. All of that's external. But then we come to Luke 21. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he says, truly, I tell you, this poor woman has put in more than all of them. For she contributed or they contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had. And certainly that's a better picture of true religion. So is the Lord trying to teach us about what is false and what is true? If the Lord's doing that, and like I said, I ran with that for a little while, I certainly would exhort you to trust in the Lord always, to lean not on your own understandings in all your ways, acknowledge Him or trust Him, and He will make your paths or He will guide you. Without question, true religion is not marked by outward appearance or visible demonstration or spiritualized speech. True religion is found in the inner man and it reaches out to God in trust. And I even found a great example for this. And it's even a widow. So you've got your Bibles there. Put something there so you can get back to Luke 20 quickly and go with me to the first Kings. First Kings 17. Let's read about a widow First Kings chapter 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, Arise and go to Zarephath, where our which belongs to Sidon, and you live there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now let me pause very quickly. When we get to the end of this, you're going to go, well, how could this happen? This woman's not even a Jew. Well, here's your answer. In the sovereignty of God, he put it within her heart. And this, you need to know, she doesn't even know that yet. Okay? So I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So Elijah arose in verse 10, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, there was a widow there gathering sticks. And he called to her, and he said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it in, he he called to her and he said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord, your God, not her God, as the Lord, your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go do as you said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil will not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And so she went and did as Elijah said, verse 16, and the jar of flour was not spent. Neither the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. There's a faithful widow. Go back now with me to Luke 20. So you can see I spent some time on this particular thought. Then I came back to it. Is this about true religion that trusts? And I came to the conclusion, no, it's not. Now, by this time, I had realized the struggle. So I set to the task of reading about a dozen commentaries, including Calvin. And I was encouraged that many took the tack that I took on this particular passage. But I, 
had remembered before I ever got to this passage that Tyler Robbins asked me, and it's been a couple of years ago, have you ever read MacArthur's work on this particular passage? And I hadn't, and I still hadn't until I got there. I knew I was going to when I got here. And so I sat down and I began to read some of his take on this passage and I got halfway through it and it was like the lights come on. I stopped and I sat down and I went back through everything and reworked it all again. And I found something entirely different, something entirely much more convicting, something that I want to present to you this morning as the truth of the text. And I think it can be drawn faithfully because not only does it pay attention to the passage before and the passage after, it pays attention to the flow of the entire section. So if you're in Luke 20, I want you to look back at 19 and you'll see in, in Luke 19, verse 41. And if you have subtitles, this is going to be super helpful for you. Luke 19, 41, the subtitle before that is Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Slow down, don't yell. He's coming into the city for Passion Week. And when he sees the city, he immediately begins weeping over the city. And so we catch the context of what's about to take place is terrible things. Now look with me at verse 45. Again, if you have the subtitles, it's super helpful. Jesus cleanses the temple. In verse 45, he enters the temple. He begins to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house should be a house of prayer, but note, you have made the temple a den of robbers. And so Jesus condemns the practices taking place in the temple. And then he cleanses the temple. Judgment. And then he speaks this parable in chapter 20, verse 9. If you have the subtitle, super helpful. The parable of the wicked tenants. Of course, you know what that means. He is speaking this parable against the religious leaders. And he comes to his conclusion in verse 17. He looked directly at the religious leaders and says, what, this, what then is this that stands written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he talks about how that stone will crush them. Judgment against the religious leaders. And then we have three sections. First one starts in 19 where Jesus addresses paying taxes. And I spent so much time on there trying to show you that they hated their government. They wanted to replace their government, but God designed their government. And so we can see in verse 19, Jerusalem fails in relationship to the world. In 27, there's a theological question brought to Jesus about the resurrection. The Sadducees fail. They don't understand the word of God. Verse 41 of chapter 20 whose son is the Christ, Jesus asked the other religious leaders a, a, a question right out of the text, and they don't understand that, so we draw the conclusion Jerusalem fails in understanding the word. When you get to verse 47, these are the guys who make pretense out of their long prayers, Jerusalem fails in worship. All failure, failing in the world, failing in the word, failing in the worship, and in 45 and 47, Jesus pronounces judgment on the nation of Israel, they will receive a greater condemnation to the religious leaders. Got four little verses about a widow. And then we roll right into 21.5 where Jesus begins to talk about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So, judgment, 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 judgment times three, judgment, judgment at the end. And so this is what we have in the middle. Verses about a widow tithing in the temple. Am I supposed to preach about tithing? 
That's a little bizarre. So once I outlined the text, I realized that I'd been way off on the text. So I began working back through it, trying to see what the Lord was painting for us or what he was trying to teach us. And so these are some of the things that I began to notice. In verse 46, the scribes are the one who devour widows' houses. Now, they're not the ones that burn down their house. They're the ones who take so much from them they can't afford to live anymore, even their last two pennies. And so when you get in the very next passage in 21.1, Jesus looks up and he sees this poor widow put in two small copper coins. Well, that builds an immediate contrast. Then you begin to look around in the, in, the, in the four passages, I mean the four verses of that passage, and you notice where Jesus is putting some emphasis here. Twice he's got words for the rich, rich in abundance. But I found it very fascinating. In the English you can't see this, but in the Greek it's very clear. He uses three different words to describe our poverty. It's a complete and thorough picture of the fact or the reality that she has absolutely nothing to her name. And Jesus will address that because what does he say? She put in all she had to live on. There's nothing left. She's poor, poor, impoverished, we would say in the English text. But there's three very different words in the Greek. And it's just a complete picture of poverty that this woman has. And then I found it interesting once I started working through the Greek that there's parallelism here. And let me see if I can help you with this. Again, I'm treating this like a Wednesday night. But you see this, ektu? And this is the word but, ektu? Both of those mean out of thee, out of thee, okay? And they're balanced in the Greek. This is the word for abundance, and this is the word for poverty. So out of the abundance of theirs gave. Out of the you know what this word really means? Not there. Lacking. It's most often translated lacking. Here in the text, we translate it poverty. But out of the, it's not there. She, same word, gave. And so it's perfectly parallel, save for this little phrase. And this is the phrase for life. And this is the phrase for all. So out of it not being there, this woman gave her life. There was nothing left for her to have life. It was all gone. So I began to get even more convinced about what's going on here. I looked forward in the text. I found some other words. 21.4, it was her poverty. 21.5, when he begins talking about the temple... Luke uses these words. It was adorned with noble, fine, beautiful. There's all kinds of words here. Beautiful stones and offerings. It was one of absolute opulence. So here's the picture. Jesus looks up. He sees the rich tithing. He looks up. He sees a devoured widow. He looks up across the street is an extravagant Temple. Now let me ask you, do you have a problem with that picture? It's amazing how we've heard this passage so many times, but we never stop to think about the picture. And I really got a grasp of this picture one time because I was in Mexico. Pretty impoverished place. 
There's beggars everywhere. They don't have government giving away money like ours do. There's nothing there. They beg for it. And we turned the corner and there was this most beautiful temple, Catholic church, went inside, gold inlaid things everywhere. And there's beggars laying on the steps of the door going, had to walk up past the beggars to get through the door to walk into this opulent, magnificent structure that was gorgeous. And the contrast was very real in my heart about what was going on in that scene. So Jesus is sitting there, the wealth are making a show of their offerings. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Walking into a temple, and I'll describe it in just a second, that's just laid with gold everywhere. And here's a poor widow that walks up and drops in the last two bits of life that she possesses. Pretty striking picture. Hopefully you're frustrated by that. Now, what is the offering box that we see back in 21.1? Better described as treasury. It's the court in which Jesus was sitting, and it was a very large open court in the temple area. The place where Jesus was sitting or looking at was called the court of women. Now watch this. Watch the spin on this. The inner court was for men only. But the outer court, again called the court of women, was the place where everyone could go. Everyone. Now guess where they set the offering plate? In the inner where only the men could go or in the outer where everyone was welcome. That's where the offerings were made, where anyone could go. The offering plates or the treasuries rather were 13 shofar or trumpet shaped containers that were made available to the people to give their wealth or give their offerings. So people would go by and very publicly put their giving on display as self-righteous acts in an effort to buy the favor of God. The religious leaders had designed it this way. This was not of the Lord. They had designed it this way because they wanted everyone to have the opportunity to give. If we were the church later on Saturday Night Live, we would say, well, isn't that special? It's how they made it up. So women can't go in the inner courts to worship, but we can stay outside and and give. From the perspective of the religious leaders, let's take two perspectives from their perspective and the temple perspective. From the religious leaders, this was a religious system designed that, in a way that demanded money. The religious leaders who were in charge reaped the benefits of that money. They lived very comfortably, wealthy lives compared to everyone else, which is exactly what false religion does today. Leaders sit in extravagant buildings, crushing the people with tithes and offerings and reaping those benefits personally. From the perspective of the temple, let me describe this for you. Jesus' audience marvels at its magnificence. And some say, and I read in some commentaries, that even if you go there today, there is no stone that's stacked upon another. It's ruins, but it's impressive. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, described it this way. The gate opening into the temple was completely overlaid with gold as was the whole wall around it. It had above it golden vines from which hung grape clusters that were as large as a man, those two overlaid. It had golden doors that were 55 cubits high and 16 cubits broad. That's 82 feet tall and 24 feet wide covered with gold. 
Before these hung a veil of equal length of Babylonian tapestry embroidered with blue and fine linen of scarlet, also purple, wrought with mar marvelous skill. The blocks of stone used in the construction were enormous. Josephus, again, not a Christian Jewish historian, first century Jewish historian, said that some of those stones were 40 cubits, which is about 60 feet in length. The columns in the temple were 42 feet high. And it took three men with outstretched arms just to reach around them. So that's a Jewish historian. Here's a Roman historian, Tacitus. He described it in two words. It was immensely opulent. It's extravagant to the, to the tune that none of us could even fathom. And in walks this poor lady to give two pennies. So we got two things standing in contrast to this poor widow. Religious leaders who are devouring her life in a temple that's so extravagant that people marveled at it so much they didn't even notice a widow who was giving her life away. So as I began to think about that, I thought, well, let me run to the Old Testament and check out widows in the Old Testament. And it shouldn't surprise you, I hope, to find that widows were written into the law of God. So you come to Exodus 22, 22, where the Lord is giving the law and he says, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you afflict him at all. And if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. My anger will be kindled and I will kill you with the sword. And your wife will become a widow and your children fatherless. That was written in the law. God is very passionate about the widows. Now, if this was Wednesday night, I'd ask this question. Don't answer out loud. I'll just give you a second. See if you can figure it out. Which book of the Bible talks the most about widows? Now, if you've got an answer in your mind, I'm not going to ask because we might go through 66 before 65 before we get it. But the book of the Bible that is really a collection of sermons from beginning to end where Moses is telling them how the law applies to daily living. What book is that? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Now watch these passages about the widow as Moses tries to teach us how to apply the law. In Deuteronomy 10, he's preaching on the character of God and he says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow. And he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Moses connects the character of God with care for widows immediately. No passages in between. When you get to Deuteronomy 24, Moses writes, When you reap your harvest in your field and you have forgotten a sheath in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyards, you don't go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. Here's why. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. This is how the law applies. One more passage from the book of Deuteronomy. When you have finished paying all the tithes of your increase, notice... When you have finished paying all the tithes of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and by the way, you shall give it to the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied, you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house. Also, I have given it 
the tithe, to the Levite, the alien, the orphan, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you've commanded me, I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. In other words, rather than the widow tithing, the tithing should have been given to the widow to meet the commandments of God. But they had conveniently forgotten that because the religious leaders had established a lifestyle and built a temple that demanded money to maintain it. So these are some things that I began to wrestle with. And then I remembered that Luke 20 and 21 is set in the context of Jeremiah 7. So I think the last place we'll go to run with me to Jeremiah 7. And let me read a few passages for us there. Beginning in verse 1, because I think you're going to recognize much of this. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from, or the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Jeremiah 7 1. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, change your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in those deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly change your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you live here with this temple in the land that I gave you or I gave of old to your fathers. Behold, you trust in deceptive words, no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear, make offerings to Baal? Will you go after other gods and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on and keep doing the same sin or abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord as he walks into the temple, right? Go now to my place that is in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell there first, and see what I did to it because of my people Israel, or because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and to the places that I gave to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And he tore that house down. So when we go back to Luke 20, 21, these passages are being played out not as prophecy, but as real life. And the last words of Jesus are, oh, I'm going to tear this house down. Because they refuse to hear the word of the Lord. So as you're on your way back to Luke 20, Jesus looked up and he brought attention to bankrupt leaders in a bankrupt system that sits and watches a widow bring her last two pennies for life and drop them in the offering plate. 
More than likely, she was convinced by the religious leaders that you could purchase salvation or get relief from desperation or destitution. We call this today prosperity theology or seed faith. If you'll just give those last two pennies to God, God will multiply it many times over. Now, listen, before we shake our heads, this is not too far off from what we have a tendency to do today. If we use this passage for tithing, isn't it amazing because she had two pennies in her pocket, we run to tithing? That's frightening. We put an unnecessary financial burden on a congregation. We take up money until it hurts, telling people this is what God wants us to do. And by the way, give the pennies because God counts them too. And then we turn around and we construct another temple. Opulent, magnificent. There's more to this. I'll just mention these briefly and you can just hang on, strap in. Luke 21, 1, again, Jesus is watching this. 21, 1 says he saw the rich. Verse 2 says he saw the poor. So you have to ask this, is Jesus commending this lady or is he using this lady to convict us? And I came to the conclusion he's not commending, but rather he's convicting So I went back through the gospel of Luke and looked for people that the Lord commended and how he did it. Now, you'll find this fascinating, I hope. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the Lord says about them that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Simeon, just a man in the temple. The Lord says he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, another widow. Never left the temple, worshiping and fasting, praying night and day. And yet here Jesus sits and watches a widow with no names and there's no commendation. But certainly if Jesus wanted to commend what she was doing, she's the only person I can find in this book that's unnamed other than the adulteress. In other words, if it was a good scene, the Lord might have said, here comes Samantha, righteous and devout in all of God's commandments, and she's bringing her offering to the Lord and giving it all. He doesn't turn to the disciples and say, you do likewise. There's no commendation. There's just simple observation. You think about the other people that were commended in Luke. Luke 7, the centurion, not a Jew. Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Luke 7, the sinful woman, unnamed. Jesus says about her, she loved much. Luke 10, the good Samaritan, unnamed, not Jew. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Samaritan leper, unnamed, not Jew. He comes back when the other nine left. And so again, is this commendation or conviction? Because I've become convinced that it's conviction, Right? Now, as far as widows go in the gospel, again, you have Anna that the Lord brings up. But almost always in the Bible, widows and poor are recipients of service and ministry, and they're not tithers. Listen to these, and I'll run through them again quickly. Luke 7, our Lord raises a widow's son from the dead. Luke 18, a widow begs for justice and receives justice from an ungodly king. Luke 12, the Lord's words to us, sell your possessions, give to the poor. Luke 18, when Jesus heard about the rich young ruler, he said, one thing you lack, sell what you have, give to the poor, then follow me. 
Luke 19, a man is converted by the grace of God named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' response was, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widow in their affliction. John MacArthur says this about all of this, as I read back through his notes, any religion that is built on the backs of the poor is a false religion. So here's some questions for you as I close. What is this poor widow teaching us? Sacrificial tithing? No. But if you ever get to the place where you've got two pennies and you come to me and you say, listen, I just want to give it to the Lord. I'll hug you. I'll pray for you. And then I'll come back to the church and tell y'all we're going to start paying so that they can live on a monthly basis. Is it about the upside down wisdom of God? Well, that's everywhere. I don't think so. It doesn't fit the context. Is it about unwavering trust? Again, doesn't fit the context. I think this widow is really asking us a question, or rather the Lord is asking us a question through this widow. And here's some questions that I wrote. Are we even paying attention to what we're doing? Don't let your relationship with Christ be defined by coming to this building on Sunday morning. Don't do that. That makes no sense. What we do on Sunday morning is to worship God and gather our spirits to go out the door and reflect the same love and kindness that we've received from God by serving others. Here's a question I wrote down. Does our religion look more like hypocrisy or Christ? Because if I'd been sitting there with Jesus, I hope that I would have come to the same conclusion I think he comes to. Does anyone see the hypocrisy in this? Anyone? I wonder if there's a church today, and this one hurt me the most. I wonder if there's a church in our day that has spent more on doing the things that the Lord has instructed us to do rather than building their own temple. I hope we can say that one day. So here it is. There's bankrupt leaders in this last section. There's a bankrupt religious system. And Jesus says in 21, oh, I'm about to tear it down. So here's the question for us. Do we have bankrupt leaders? Everywhere you look. Do we have a bankrupt system? You find it in a lot of places. You think Jesus is going to tear it down when he gets here again? You better believe it. But the only question that you and I need to be concerned with, when he tears it down, will we still be standing honoring the things that he has given us to do? Let's pray.